0: Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.
1: Good morning. Good morning. My name is Andrea Simintov, and you are listening to Pull Up a Chair on Israel News Talk Radio.com. I think I've been getting sloppy uh sloppy lately greeting those who are listening in live and i hope that you will uh pop into the chat room let me know where you're listening from and have a comment or two this morning we have listeners from the us and canada which actually is very late at night there uh all over europe I don't know where in Europe, but my monitor says Europe. We have Sweden listening in, and of course, Norway and Denmark, as well as India is listening in. We haven't heard from you guys in a while. Good morning, Nigeria. Good morning, Jamaica. And I'm very happy to tell you that both Rwanda and uh, Zimbabwe and Rhodesia are listening in today. Today, we're going to be talking about, if I can stay on track, if I can... <laughs> kind of contain my brain. Uh, we're going to talk about shades of gray. You know, the non absolutes in life, the non absolutes in relationships, in the news, in politics, and of course in the Torah portion. And if we can portion, and if we can make connections, um, I would be very excited. I am. Oh, the other thing before we go to our first break to take us in, I just want to get this in. I have heard too often it said, well, at least we can pray. No, we will start with prayer. When you start every day with delicious prayer, um, everything really does line up all all right. It's getting our priorities in order, whether I'm starting a radio show, whether I'm ready to make a pot of coffee, whether I have to deal with a husband or a child, recalcitrant and deliberate, uh, difficult, Start with prayer. And I promise anybody listening in, the day will have a good start. Then you can lay out your clothing, you can brush your teeth, you can decide what the menu is. But again, when we realize when all the good, all the beneficence, everything wonderful coming to us comes from above, we're starting off well. My name is Andrea Simontov. Guess what? I'll see you on the other side. Simon pull up a chair on israelnewstalkradio.com. Before the break, we talked about shades of gray. Um, yeah. Okay. So we talked about kind of the shades of gray. Have so many delicious listeners coming in today. And uh, I did want to tell you, because those of you who care about the weather report in Israel, today it is freezing. It is so cold. Very unusual Not what we are uh, typically used to, but it's amazing to think that it's already almost mid-December and we're first putting on sweaters. Um OK, some thoughts I had this week, and then I'd like to know what you think, and please write it into the chat room or send me a note, Andrea at Israelnewstalkradio.com. love hearing from you. And if anything I say is not quite clear in terms of sources, where did I get it from? I don't make it up, despite how casual it sounds. Uh, happy to send you all of my source material. Sometimes, my friends, people are difficult. I was thinking recently about complainers, complainers, complainers. I grew up in a complaining house. Uh, I admit it now. It was not the source of the uh, greatest pride, but we used to complain. We would, guests would come, and then when we we were done, we would sit and work everybody over. Oh, this one, this. Did you see what she wore? Did you see? We would go other places. What did we eat? What did they serve? What did they talk about? And I think about rain dripping on a rock, on a stone, over millennium, millennia. And eventually it does get eroded. And I thought to myself, my husband and I had this discussion, oh gosh, not just once, day after day. What if people chose not to complain, had a rubber band on their wrist, and every time they were about to diss a person, criticize A politician uh, expressed disappointment over a meal. They took that rubber band and snapped it. Eventually, would we have to stop? Would we have to keep snapping or would we be able to stop? And I'm trying to think how many precious moments in this too short life are spent complaining. My mother She should live and be well. She should live until 120 in robust health. She told me a very sad story. She lives in a senior residence. I will not identify it nor tell you the state in case you're going to go out and start, uh, you know, crawling to find her. And she told me that it's a very wonderful thing to be invited to join a table. Because whether people are in their 90s or they're nine years old in the school cafeteria, to be wanted, to be included. Is a wonderful wonderful feeling exclusion is sad and sometimes very frightening and she told me a story that she had been invited to join a table and she can't get out of it 92 years old teary like a child and every meal the people at the table are complaining about everything that's coming out of the dining room a dining room that is serving 300 people 300 picky people at least 150 of whom fed families over decades and decades and are critical and are opinionated and are strong minded and they're feeding them and the food is wholesome and the food is healthy and the food is lovingly prepared and prepared for different diets as well and she sits with these people who I don't know they don't look like they're falling apart but they keep saying I can't eat this I can't cut this, who could chew this? Everything has become diminished. And she told me, really through tears, that the food is staying stuck in her throat because instead of being a pleasant, uh, a communal experience, it is becoming a point of contention. And I thought to myself, my gosh, thank you, mom. Thank you for opening my eyes to things that we do, Attitudes that we hold. Um, She then also told me something, and it reminded me. She told me about um, two women had fallen asleep at their table, a table for two. They're very elderly. People are really, every day, nobody improves. People become increasingly diminished in these loving environments. We hope that they're loving. And some of the women at our table began to laugh, laugh at the sleeping women, and I thought to myself, take the rubber band on our wrist and ping it, ping it, ping it when we feel judgment happening, ping it. I saw little children this past Shabbos laughing at somebody who was very diminished, and I thought let's ping it, ping it. People, I really do believe, and again, I'm working on myself, instead of making our every hour, a poor hour, what about making it our finest hour? By not complaining, by taking that moment, can we indeed um, create cosmic repercussions of wonderful health? Or will we continue to allow our holy world to tremble? Again, it's a form of exercise just as in my mother's uh, facility, they have exercise programs. I kid you not, they literally have wheelchair kickboxing. I don't know, I thought that was very humorous. Of course, I'm the only person laughing. But anyway, just as our bodies need exercise, our souls need exercise, our tongues and our hearts. It reminds me of a meme I once received that said, be okay with not being invited. How do we handle slights? How do we handle that which jolts our egos? Came across a um, interesting thing from, from the text uh, this week, from the portion in terms of complaining what does a Torah have to say with it? You know, Yaakov has a conversation with Paro, I think it was, uh, I think it was actually the last parsha, in which he complains about his difficult life and his wanderings from place to place. And um, Rabbi Benjamin Blech, who to this day remains my teacher, he quoted um, the Chizoni, who writes that Hashem scolds Yaakov, and reduces his lifetime of our forefather by 30 years, 30 years, one year for each word spoken by Yaakov in his speech with Paro, because apparently Yaakov forgot about the kindnesses that God bestowed upon him when he saved him from Esau, from Levon, and from Shechem, and his returning both Dina and Yosef. There are so many um opportunities we have to reach for that higher brass ring and too often we immerse ourselves in complaints just got a note when i I said i said paro it's faro faro as we know in english cute thing i came across before we go to the break i just love this just humorous somebody posted on facebook things that they learned in jerusalem i can't quite source it but um Constant hooting at red lights is a thing. And if you're going to make it in Israel, just deal with it. A shop owner will have absolutely no problem asking you to watch his store for 10 minutes, even though he has no idea who you are. Okay? And um, Israelis talking to one another. You can ask a shouting person why they're shouting. And this, this will lead him to tell you that he is not shouting while he is shouting. Okay, your Hebrew, both speaking and reading, will get better. It's only taken me 26 years. I can hold a minor conversation until as you're reading, you see an English word spelled in Hebrew, and then you will be very confused for at least 10 seconds. And now this is something to tell the women listening in. The guy at the Shuk who sells olives, he's gonna flirt with anyone. Don't feel too special. Okay, Um, yeah, this is true. Hearing Hebrew, English, Russian, Amharic, and Mandarin within the space of maybe three minutes is a completely normal day, certainly in Jerusalem. Walking along train tracks, completely normal. And indeed, you will begin to speak to dogs and cats in Hebrew. All right. It also says everything is better with hummus, but I don't know. All right. Um, I do want to say, before we go to this break, a passing of note Army Colonel Edward shames I don't know if you pronounce his name, Shames or Shamus. Those of you who saw the film, the HBO film, uh, Band of Brothers, he was the last surviving officer of historic World War II, uh, the, parach- uh, the Parachute intri- Infantry Regiment of the US Army, known as the East Company. He died this past Friday. He was really involved in some of the most important Battles of war. They're passing, my friends. It's important that we know this history. Uh, Colonel Seamus made his first combat jump into Normandy on D-Day as part of Operation Overlord. And he gained a reputation as a stubborn and very outspoken soldier, a proud American who demanded the highest standards from himself and his fellow soldiers, And in Germany, he was the first member of the 101st to enter the Dachau concentration camp just days after liberation. When Germany surrendered, uh, Seamus and his men confiscated a few bottles of cognac, a label indicating that they were for the Fuhrer's use only. This was according to his obituary. Later, he used this cognac to toast his oldest son's bar mitzvah, according to the obituary um he was preceded in death by his devoted wife ida they were married for 73 years truly my friends a passage of note okay so look up the east company and edward Seamus. andrea simento i'll speak with you Everybody, making a difference often takes just one moment and
0: one person at a time. I am Orly Benny Davis, your show host on Israel News Talk Radios from Jerusalem with love. You'll be hearing people talking about politics, religion, social issues, and making it
1: better tomorrow. Join me, Orly Benny Davis, for God and Country, from Jerusalem with love.
2: Wednesdays on Israel News Talk Radio.
1: we're back. Andrea Simintov, pull up a chair on Israel News Talk uh, We're going to get into serious stuff soon, but look, I just want to share with you. I'm trying to drink less coffee. Can anybody relate to this? So, uh, you know, but I don't want to be so hyphenated. Hyphenated. <laughs> I think I need even less coffee. I don't want to be so caffeinated during the day. So I'm buying these herb teas. I am drinking an herb tea now. I wish I could tell you it's delicious and recommend it literally it is like drinking a pot of perfume who is in charge in these places somebody send me your little andrea israelnewstalkradio.com send me your recipes for like natural herb teas what spices what dried herbs i should mix and drink because this really won't be it's like dolce gabbana i'm drinking okay um came across a lovely This is an essay from Rav Ephraim Goldberg, who I do not know, but clearly that is my loss. And I came across this and I thought that you would like it as much as I did. A story is told that one day as a small child. Oh, wait, let me just say, take this with a grain of salt. A lot of times these stories are a little bit uh, nuanced. They're kind of bent a tad just to kind of drive the moral home. We know that George Washington never did. Uh, Knocked down that cherry tree. But nevertheless, this is actually sourced. The story is told that one day as a small child, Thomas Edison came home from school. I don't have to tell you who Thomas Edison is. If you're reading under a lamp, you know who it is. And he gave a paper to his mother and he said, mom, my teacher gave this paper to me and told me only you are to read it. What does it say? Arise filled with tears. And she read the letter out loud to her child. Quote, your son is a genius. This school is too small for him and doesn't have good enough teachers to train him. Please teach him yourself. Many years after Edison's mother had died, he became one of the greatest inventors of the century. We know this. When he was going through a closet, he found the folded letter from his old teacher. He opened it and found that the true message written on the letter said, quote, your son is mentally deficient. We cannot let him attend our school anymore. He is expelled. Edison then wrote in his diary, Thomas Edison was a mentally deficient child whose mother turned him into the genius of the century. Now, while the details of this story are likely not all that accurate, it is indeed documented that Edison was called addled by his teacher who determined that he should no longer remain in school. His mother, his mommy, his ema, became his most enthusiastic champion. And only because of her encouragement, belief, and constant kind words did Thomas Edison become the great inventor Wow. Something to take home. Yeah. All right. So my friends from Canada, I don't often talk about Canada because you're just so nice. (laughs) What else is there to say? Canadians, they're nice. However, okay, we're going to call this in the time to come home department. And I'm sure that you can send me even more information. Apparently, kosher food has become a BDS flashpoint Uh, on Canadian college campuses, a fight over a resolution to ban kosher foods that, quote, normalize Israeli apartheid is dividing students at a University of Toronto satellite campus. Give me a moment. Let me yawn. All right, we all know what um, BDS is, boycott, uh, boycott, divest, and sanction, created solely for the purpose of the democratic, too democratic, and loving and progressive state of Israel. So according to this JTA article that it says that after an outcry and a rebuke from the University of Toronto president, this is clearly a, I don't even know, it's like a satellite uh, campus, doesn't say where it is, you guys know. Modified a proposed ban on kosher foods in any way affiliated with Israel. But a Jewish campus group said the change made matters worse. That the board of directors of the University of Toronto Scarborough campus student union, I'll have to look up and see where that is, are convened for an emergency meeting December 1st to address the outcry after a November 24th resolution affirming the union's boycott, divestment, and sanctions policy. Uh, regarding Israel-placed Israel restrictions on kosher food distribution. This is my favorite paragraph. The emergency meeting removed from the earlier pro-BDS resolution, a passage that said, efforts should be made to source kosher food from organizations that do not normalize Israeli apartheid. However, recognizing the limited availability of this necess- necessity, then exemptions can be made if no alternatives are available. Let me give you a word, okay? You can write this down in your your, uh, daily uh, word list. Arrogance. The unmitigated chutzpah of those who know. Just shocking, people. It really is. Don't kid yourselves. You think you're going to fix this? I'm going to to get off script a moment and speak from my belly. You know, there are too many who say, I get I get it. I could never live in Israel. And I'm speaking to my Jewish listeners now, okay? Everybody, you're invited to listen in, but nudge your Jewish neighbors. Tell them it's time to go home, okay? Absolutely. You're not going to fix it. And we here in Israel need your morality. We need your outrage. We need your umbrage. You don't agree with the Israeli government. You don't like the Israeli government. You don't like Haredi Jews, ultra-Orthodox. You don't like secular Jews. You do not like our treatment of Arabs. You think that Arabs have too much freedom? Come on. Put your passion here. There's enough water, there's enough food, there's enough housing, there's enough land, there's enough air, and there's enough of God's blessing for every single one of you who is Jewish by birth or Jewish by recognized conversion to come home. Please stop. It will not get better. When you start talking about normalizing Two years ago, oh, this just comes back, That I just wanted to finish up on this because I'm getting too passionate. I don't want to get political here, except my next comment is actually political. But anyway, two years ago, an official of the university's graduate student union said that the union would knock back a Hillel, you know, Hillel is a campus Jewish organization, initiative to bring kosher food to campus because Hillel is pro-Israel. Well, whoop-de-doo, the union later apologized. Yawn. Get your passports in order. Start the process. Nobody's going to push you onto the plane. Get the process started, because I promise you, even in nice Canada, the welcome mat is slowly, slowly, or maybe not so slowly, being pulled back. Okay, a new poll. (laughs) Okay, a new poll shows that the Bennett-Lapid government is unpopular, but no other viable options exist. And that six months since the formation of a kind of disparate eight-party ruling coalition, eight parties, could you believe it, led by Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, a poll came out. Who put this poll together? The Manu Geva. And you should know that it has a 4.4% margin of error. I don't know who made up that number, maybe his mother, but... um, It's unpopular, but the survey also showed that there are precious few other options, as new elections would continue the parliamentary deadlock that plagued Israel some two years and four elections ago. Uh, uh, the poll showed that oh, interesting. Nearly twice as many Israelis prefer opposition leader Benjamin Netanyahu as prime minister to Bennett or the alternate, the alternate prime minister Yair Lapid. If the elections were held today, hope you're taking notes. Forty-five percent of the respondents said they would like to see a Likud if he could chairman to be prime minister, compared to only twenty-five percent who would prefer Bennett and twenty-four percent. Who would prefer Lapid? Now, I should let you know that Bennett's approval numbers, they may have been impacted. Of course, it's totally subjective. um, May have been impacted by a public uproar over a recent overseas trip by his family taken after Bennett recommended against travel uh, for the rest of Israelis because of the new Omicron uh, coronavirus variant. All right, I have all the numbers, how the polls show that Lukieh, we could climb to 34 seats. Above the 30, Yesh Akid would receive 19, two more than the current 17. Shas and Blue and White would get nine. Um, let's see, the new, new whole party would crash out, gone, finished, receiving no seats in the party. All right, uh, when we come back, we're going to go right into Parsha. Came across an interesting, very shocking story about Israeli poverty. So many of us do close our eyes. I'm a little bit jaded because it seems to be a sponsored article, but nevertheless, there are a lot of organizations, a lot of sadaka charity groups working, and understand, since tourism has kind of fallen apart in Israel, we have far fewer volunteers coming and packing goods and food and even donating as people's financial situations are becoming far more precarious around the world. Interesting article. Uh, When we come back, let's see what the Torah has to say about it. Simon Jove, Israel, Newstalkradio.com. Why would you have your computer set to any other station? I do not know. All right. So <laughs> let me see. Oh, we have somebody listening in today. Very nice. North Dakota. I thought I'm cold in Jerusalem. I can only imagine what North Dakota is like this morning. Oh, my gosh. Okay. And, you know, plus, you can never heat up these apartments. It's just the pits here. All right. So this week's Parsha, Torah portion, so that the uh, the announcer, the engineer, doesn't yell at me for speaking too much Hebrew. You know what happens? I just need to share this with you before Parsha. And um, oh, how exciting. Uh, Iran is listening in with us this morning. Wow. I wonder, are you cold in Iran? Are you as cold as I am here? I wonder what's going on there with the weather. I'll check it out. Okie doke. So... Anyway, I forgot what I was saying. So, gosh, This week's Torah portion. Oh, yeah, I remember. I use a lot of Hebrew words, and it's not because I'm trying to teach you Hebrew. It's because the English disappears, but it's not replaced with anything. So you're not really learning Hebrew. You're just kind of getting a gibberish. Okay, maybe we'll have to do, introduce the Yiddish 101 class. Okay, this week's Torah portion talks about remorse, repentance, reconciliation, reunion, and the ultimate redemption. These are the underlying themes throughout the portion. Okay, and as an aside, I just need to start with this. Something that kind of fascinated me, in this modern world, new terminology, we have the word ghosting, gaslighting, scamming, phishing, we've all heard of it. So now the brothers go back to their father and they say, Abba, your safe is alive. But he had been through so much. And his boys had, a, you know, let's just say there was a history of deceit there, or at least questionable storytelling. How in the world could they convince him that they were telling the truth? You know, he had always, we see the underlining. Hint, the dust, the avak, we call it in Hebrew. Uh, He doubted the veracity of their earlier claims that Yosef had been killed by beasts. Tangible proof was provided by Yosef, who scrupulously, very, very carefully chose his gifts to Yaakov, his father. The brothers were specifically told by Yosef to bring agalot, agalot is the Hebrew word for wagons, this was proof positive to Yaakov that Yosef was indeed alive, because the topic of Eglah al-Fa, the Haifer, who is—it's—it's a—it's a—it's obs- not obscure, but it's a, a study point in the Torah. The Haifa, the Haifer, whose neck ha- was broken um, in expiation of an unsolved murder. This was the subject, very lofty subject, that both Yosef and um, Yaakov were studying at the time of Yosef's disappearance. Only his father would know this. The brothers could not. Therefore, the text says, ha'agalot asher shalach Yosef, the wagons that Yosef had sent, and he understood it. This reminds me, I don't have this in my notes, but it reminds me that after the Second World War, when the reunification committees were going around all over Germany and Poland to locate newly orphaned Jewish children, they frequently would go into um, Christian uh, Christian schools, parochial schools, where many of the children had been lovingly housed, but many were not lovingly housed. Many were secreted and encouraged to... Um, Convert to Christianity, and the the reparation, the reparations, the reconciliation committees went into these schools, and when they were told, "We have no Jewish children in this class. You can leave now." There are many stories of one of the directors shouting out, "Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu," and the children shouting back, "Hashem Echad." Hear, o Israel, the Lord is our God. And the children shouting back, the Lord is one. Jewish children, from the moment they enter this world, are taught this phrase which separates us from the rest of the world. And it was just incredible. And these children were found. This reminds me of the Yosef Yaakov only they would know. Two outstanding events of this week's uh, portion, when he's portion Parsha, they kind of gently weave throughout the narrative. Yosef's confrontation with his brothers, and of course, the subsequent, uh, the revelation to them, and the resuscitation of Yaakov, when he learned of his son's survival, And each stop along the way, one word above other words, kind of describe the events reconciliation. Yaakov, despite all of his emunah, his trust in God, his faith, he's, he despairs. His outlook is bleak. And because of this breach of faith, Yaakov, he was not really worthy to have the shekhinah, the divine spirit, rest on his shoulders. It's only with his reconciliation with God that the ruach, the spirit, is revived and the divine spirit returns. This is, it's evidenced in the text by the meeting between the father and the son. I get I here even talking about it. They fell on each other's shoulders. And while Yosef cried, Yaakov recited Shema Yisrael, accepting the yoke of dominion of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, Blessed He he, God's sovereignty over us. Yosef too must reconcile with his brothers and it is they who take longer to accept this reconciliation even though it was Yosef who suffered so many years because of their actions, he had to repeat himself so that they would realize that he held no grudge he wanted to live in peace Israel, the land of Israel, the people of Israel our survival is necessitated by reconciliation between all brothers. Every one of us is necessary for the well being of the others. Today, if we want peace in Eretz Israel, if we want to see the end of the Galut, the diaspora, if we want the Moshiach, the coming of Messiah, now, we have to reconcile our differences so that we may be Amachad. With a Torah achaj, one nation, one people with one Torah. And that will be our pole star, our guide. Okay, so we've talked about the theme. Now, Yehuda, very powerful, very important. He confronts Yosef regarding all of the false accusations that Yosef has piled on his brothers, both Yosef and Yehuda have right on their side. This is where the theme of the show, Shades of Grey, comes in. Yehuda is certainly correct in sensing that Yosef has a personal agenda of animosity towards him. He can feel it, he can smell it, he can taste it, and his brothers, and as well as towards the brothers, and he's, ex- he's expressed it by false accusations. Yosef, however, is justified in his behavior toward his brothers in order to bring them to the realization of this terrible sin they committed against him and Yaakov and when they sold him as a slave and covered up the event for well, what was it? 20 years? Right, 20 years. He was a 17-year-old boy. Both Yehuda and Yosef, they're very strong personalities, and each one is convinced in the correctness of their own cause and their opposition to the other. Yosef has the upper hand since the brothers actually are under his jurisdiction. He's arrested them. And yet Yosef feels weak with the knowledge that these are his brothers and any act of revenge that he might take upon them can really rebound negatively upon him and his family. This knowledge of the difficulty and the ambivalence of the situation. This is the reason that he weeps and finally he must reveal himself as their long-lost brother. You know, his pursuit of ultimate justice and full repentance of the brothers as well appears to be a dangerous course to pursue any further unity of family, the knowledge of the grief of his father and compounding that grief towards the brothers until now. You know, it could be very dangerous. It could be filled with finger-pointing But after the shock settles, the revelation creates a different bond, a mighty bond. And the behavior of both Yosef and Yehuda in this confrontation and the resolution for the benefit of family unity, it testifies to the wisdom and holiness in a most dangerous and indeed a volatile situation You know, as a story, I I just want to, um, let me just see this. You know, the story of Yaakov's family is a story of almost all Jewish life, quarrels, misunderstandings, misjudgments, and somehow goodness, kindness, tolerance, and reconciliation. Jewish tradition teaches us that until our disputes are resolved, we are always going to have terrible conflict, and we cannot reach the promises of our potential. And yet, in spite of it all, the Jewish people do remain a family with shared ideals and an optimistic vision for our future. Let's close with this. The shoemaker always says to the patron, as long as the candle burns, there's still time for repairs. What can we take away? As long as the candle of the soul burns, there is still time for all of us to mend our ways. Shabbat Shalom
2: L'Vorach from Jerusalem.